Um, we're in Luke chapter 17, verses 1 to 10. It was Dave Totten who um, spoke, Dave Totten from Liverpool, who spoke in one of the sessions yesterday at the Fellowship Day. And he introduced it by saying how he'd loved and enjoyed the, the personal study of Joshua, which was his subject, and how his concern was, would he be able to convey in an effective way the things he had enjoyed so much himself? And that's where I am in this study of Luke. Um, it's a great privilege to um, be involved in in studying like we are doing this kind of systematic study of the book um, and getting some rich things that perhaps we wouldn't ordinarily see unless we were studying with the objective of giving a ministry. And one of the things about this particular section of Luke and the previous um, probably five or six chapters is that it's a, it's a lot about uh, a dynamic crowd and I can imagine people coming and going. Um, the Lord speaking to the crowd at different times and in different ways. Um, and the crowd, of course, includes his disciples, um, who I just imagine would be the closest to him. But there might be thousands of people in, in the crowd. And some had opinions and were shouting their opinions. Um, and you have this, this, this uh, dynamic thing going on. And... The challenge we have with our study is to try and keep that context in our minds and then as we read the narrative try and piece it all together when the Lord said that what prompted him to say it and who was he really targeting uh, that message at um, so it's a, it's a great um, dynamic to have in our minds um, and that's really where I'm coming from today because there's some things that if you read in isolation, so out of context, you're kind of left scratching your head. And actually, maybe even in context, we're still left scratching our heads a little bit. But it's really helpful when you see how these things perhaps piece together and the reasons why the Lord spoke, spoke about them the way he did and why they are in the order that we read them. My talk title is, So Watch Yourselves. And this is taken from verse 3. We'll get to that in a second. And I have a, sub, uh, a subtitle, which is Cultivate a Sensitivity to Sin. I think that's really the headline that um, I'd like us to be drawing out of um, the lessons. Before I read the passage, there are five things that uh, appeal to me as key things we should be uh, focusing on. So I'll give you the five, and then as we read the passage, maybe some of them will click. And then obviously we'll go into some detail. Number one, <clears throat> sin left undealt with has the power to destroy effective discipleship. So deal with it, number one. Number two, three steps to dealing with sin. Rebuke, repent and forgive. And there's an element of personal there, um, although the rebuke has less of a significance perhaps and there's an element of um, interaction with each other. And that's perhaps where rebuke has a higher importance, but it's there. Rebuke, which triggers repentance, which triggers forgiveness. Number three, never ever provoke others to sin. 
Number four, faith plays a crucial part. It makes the seemingly impossible possible. And number five, duty calls. Let's read the passage together. Luke 17, verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, then seven times come back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant ploughing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. So let's think of the context before we go systematically through the five points. So Jesus is teaching um, over a period of days, I believe, uh, quite an eclectic crowd of people. We have healing seekers because they've seen his miraculous powers. We have uh, food seekers because they've seen his miraculous powers in the provision of food. We have messiahs messiah seekers those who are perhaps a little curious and people are talking about is this the messiah and and actually if it is this is real news and they they need to suss him out we have disciples that's those who have already um, acknowledged that actually he is the messiah and he's the one god has sent and they want to follow him there's critics who um, just are out to um, criticize what he does um, maybe some of them have some kind of religious orientation or maybe that's just the way some people are you know they see something and it's an opportunity to somehow pull it to bits and there was an element of those people in the crowd um, skeptics those who frankly um, didn't believe what he was saying thought it was all a bit fake um, perhaps couldn't explain the miracles but nevertheless they remained skeptical and then Really, at an extreme here, I would say there were Jesus haters. And I, I hope I'm not kind of um, overstating the case here, but it seems to me that that's what the Pharisees became. That um, he was so, his, his um, parables and his words were so cutting and so directed towards them, and they were maybe starting to be um, somewhat sceptical and it had turned them into Jesus haters, that's what, what they were. So you've got this wide range of, of an audience numbering thousands of people. But today, he's talking to his disciples, that's what um, 
the opening verse says, Jesus said to his disciples. Um, but it's in earshot of the Pharisees. The reason why I think it's in earshot of the Pharisees is if these things are happening sequentially, and I don't think it's, it's maybe a bit of a supposition, but it's not unrealistic to think of that. The prior chapter, the end of 16, which was the week before last, Jesus told the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And we were discussing how that was prompted by the greed of the Pharisees. So he's now moved from the Pharisees, for which that parable was focused at, and now he's moving to his disciples, but the Pharisees can still hear. So um, he's carefully using language that addresses the needs he sees for his disciples, but will also be perhaps provocative um, to the Pharisees as well. So point number one, sin left undealt with has the power to destroy effective discipleship. So it should be dealt with. Jesus said to his disciples, so it's focused to them, <clears throat> things that cause people to sin are bound to come. But woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone round, tied round his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. Key word in my statement, I'll read the statement again. Sin left undealt with has the power, key word, to destroy effective discipleship. I think... Um, Let's go back to our um, practiced teaching on eternal security and three salvations, salvation from the penalty and the power and the presence of sin. The Jesus, Jesus is addressing his disciples and I'm going to um, present the contention that he's addressing believers, saved people. And we would put ourselves into that category even though the timing's not quite right because this is pre um, his sacrifice at Calvary. Um, so he's addressing his disciples, and it would be so easy for us to um, interpret the powerful language that he's using to suggest that if we cause someone to sin, then there is some kind of eternal punishment. I don't think that is the message. And why not? Well, first of all, we need to celebrate, don't we, the um, unconditional and eternal nature of salvation from the penalty of sin. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Ephesians 2 and 8. These are our key verses. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So we have to um, maintain the principles of God's word that teach emphatically, unambiguously, um, very clearly eternal salvation from the penalty of sin and it's, it's unconditional and it's eternal. It can't be taken away from us. So that's a, a stake in the ground. It's a truth that we own. We see it elsewhere in scripture. So when we come to verses that um, perhaps might hint um, in a different direction to that. They must have an alternative ne um, meaning. I don't think the Lord, uh, I'm very confident the Lord isn't discussing the subject of eternal uh, judgment. Um, 
he's, as I said, he's talking to saved people. And he's therefore um, talking about not salvation or avoidance or dealing with sin in the context of the penalty of sin. I would put it to you that he's dealing, talking to his disciples and teaching them about the power that sin has still, even though it's been forgiven, to um, have a negative impact on disciple service. John, in his old age, uh, John would have been one of the disciples listening to these, um, this amazing teaching from the Lord. And he picks up the same theme. Let's go to 1 John 1. And we'll read verse 5, um, and then on to the first couple of verses of, of chapter 2. And it's dealing with daily sin that is a problem for disciples of the Lord. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him... Yet walk in darkness, we lie, and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus his Son purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sin, and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but also the sins of the whole world. So, John is now spelling out how this sin that pervades lives of people who live in a sinful world, even though they have the Holy Spirit in them, and they're committed to discipleship, John spells out how this sin can be dealt with. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But if anyone does... But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Go back to, to Luke. So uh, I think John's orientation here is very personal, isn't it? It's talking about our own relationship with God and the sin that can spoil that. But... Um, if we go back to uh, what Luke is saying, it leads us to our second point. And the, the second point is about, also about dealing with sin. But I, I mentioned, here's a second point. Three steps to deal with sin, rebuke, repent, and forgive. Um, and the Lord Jesus, going back to Luke 17, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to, comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. So we're now in that very delicate, sensitive area 
about dealing with sin that involves not just our own selves and God, our own behaviour, but it's dealing with, with the sin that is between us. And uh, the, the Lord's message to his disciples is really clear. Um, if your brother sins, rebuke him. This is hard um, because our inclination, surely, unless we feel really angry about it and it's a personal thing, our inclination is, well, that's for him and between him and the Lord. But that's not the principle the Lord Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you're my disciples, remember, he, he's addressing his disciples. If um, a brother has sinned, then you rebuke. And hopefully the rebuke will prompt repentance. And only after repentance is it appropriate to forgive. Jesus addresses the same point in Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, uh, tell it to the church. And so the, the process goes on. So there is a principle where, remember, we're talking about the power that sin has in our discipleship, the power that sin has, the negative power it has for, uh, to, to despoil our relationship, or to spoil our relationships with each other and our service. And I believe that's the kind of thing that the Lord is focused on in his address to his disciples here. Um, so relationships and therefore Christian service can be destroyed by the power of sin and it does need to be dealt with. Um, what does it look like? People not talking to each other, uh, holding a grudge, pretending the problem is not there, not having the courage to take the first step, the first step being rebuke, not having the grace to take the second step, that's repentance. So the Lord then comes to the verse which is our title for our talk. He says, watch yourselves. Now, I think it's a, it's a really important point for us, a practical lesson for us in our church, in our relationships with each other, to watch ourselves. That's the instruction. Because these things can creep in and they're so subtle. And you kind of think, well, I'd rather have a quiet life than address you know something that doesn't feel quite right and you know that that's going to create issues well i think it's undealt with sin the message is undealt with sin has an inevitable damaging consequence on our service and our relationship with each other and it needs to be dealt with of course it would be better if we didn't sin <laughs> if that sin wasn't there in the first place, which takes us to point three. Point three being never ever provoke someone else to sin. Sin is a, a serious business and um, being the cause of someone else's sin, I would, I would put to you, is even more serious. So back to uh, Luke 17, again to the initial verses. Jesus says to his disciples, Things that cause people to sin are bound to come, 
but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied round his neck than for him to cause these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. What he's saying is, on the one hand, sin is inevitable. Things that cause people to sin are bound to come. Um, but that's not what the Lord is addressing. Um, he's also addressing the, the point that despite that we're in a fallen world and, and sin is all around us, um, and this is my subtitle about cultivating a sensitivity to sin, we should be really careful that our interaction and our relationship with each other doesn't provoke sin. We should be in the business of, um, of living holy and pure lives. And part of that, I think, is being sensitive to the things that I do that could um, lead someone else to sin. That, that's the point. Um, we have to ask ourselves the question, who are the little ones? And I have in my mind little children and, you know, the, the, the Lord sitting round with this crowd and there's little ones running all over the place. And it might be that he was pointing to these um, little ones, but I don't, I don't think it's a, a problem. It, it's a, it's an, an issue he's addressing it to his disciples. And he's talking about your brother coming, uh, you know, going to rebuke your brother or uh, wanting to forgive your brother. This is not... This is not the business of what happens with little ones, little children. Um, I'm persuaded that the Lord is kind of talking generically um, about his disciples. Maybe little ones in the faith is a possible way of looking at it. If we go back to Luke 10 and 21, at that time Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, this was for your good pleasure. And I just have a sense there that the Lord is, is um, using this term not for infants, although they could be included, but he's using it to his disciples as fledgling uh, followers of the Lord Jesus. Um, so that, He's addressing his disciples. He's saying, if you, if you cause any one of these, any one of each other to, um, to sin, then this is a, a major problem. And then we've got this business about um, it's better for you for you to be thrown in the sea with a millstone around your neck. Um, again, I would say we're not talking about um, salvation here or, or judgment for suffering for sin. Um, were it's um, hyperbole again. Um, the Lord uses it often, and He's just emphasising so important is your ability to be disciples of Me and serve together and not provoke each other to sin. That if someone's got this um, orientation about them, it's better if they were kept, you know, separate and far away. So they had nothing to do with this service. Such is the seriousness of sin. And it, isn't it a sobering thought? If sin can be so damaging, um, 
and as someone who's got that kind of orientation about them, it's actually better if they're just not there and let the rest to go get to get on with it. I think that's how I would like to fit in uh, what the Lord is saying with this strong hyperbole language about someone having a millstone tied around the neck. Of course, it demonstrates that their own service is completely spoiled. Um, that, that's, that's gone. Their Christian life, their discipleship has gone, but also they're not there to influence negatively other people. Number four is faith plays a crucial part. It makes seemingly impossible things possible. And we'll go to verse, halfway through verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. He applied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Interestingly, it's what the Lord had just said about millstones and, and the sea and provoking people to sin that prompted the question, Lord, increase our faith. So, you know, why would they think that way? So, looking around, and the, you know, again, it's an eclectic group. Even in amongst the disciples, the a whole mixture of different people, and they're saying, you, you know, you're asking me to for, forgive my brother over and over again. Um, how do you do that? You know, that that's not within my makeup. If someone sins against me and is persistent about it, he can say sorry as often as he likes, but it's not, you know, it's not something that I'm going to tolerate. And um, the consequence is that this takes faith. So, Lord, increase our faith. The verse about um, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you know, you can say to them, all, oh, Rebush, go into the sea. Um, it's a really dangerous verse to take out of context. <laughs> Because I don't think for a moment the Lord is talking about doing um, mysterious things with trees or mountains or camels and the eyes of the needle uh, when he uses these expressions. It's very simple. It's by faith, the seemingly impossible, like forgiving your brother, is possible. And I just think that's the top and bottom of it. It's as simple as that. Um, I imagined a conversation between me and the Lord me. Lord, that brother or sister has hurt me so much, I will never be able to find it in my heart to forgive them. And his reply is, trust me, have faith, I can help you with that. It's re really simple, but I think, again, lots of hyperbolic language going on, but I think that's the crux of what the Lord is saying to his disciples. You've responded with this question, increase our faith, because the way you're asking us to live, the kind of relationships that you have is not that you're asking us to have is not natural for us. And then finally, duty calls. And we'll go to verse seven. It's kind of a separate parable, but nevertheless, right in this context. So he's still talking about forgiveness, um, not not provoking sin talking about the power of sin in their relationships, uh, in spoiling their relationships and in spoiling their service um, and the importance of faith. And he says, suppose one of you has a servant ploughing and looking after sheep. 
Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, Prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. It reminds me a little bit of our study of the Pharisees that, and what their behaviour was that prompted the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. We were saying that the Pharisees had got themselves into a kind of way of thinking and way of behaving that says, if I'm overzealous in one area of the law, it kind of cuts me some slack in the other area of the law. So they were... An example was tithing the mint um, and maybe, you know, uh, going beyond that in terms of what they, rich men, what they were able to offer. And, you know, it's as though they'd convinced themselves that because I can be so righteous in these areas, and actually they were pretty easy areas, a very comfortable zone for them to be in, then that somehow compensates for my lack or my um, lackadaisical attitude in other areas. And I was explaining that that's possibly the reason for the Lord's statement in chapter 16 about divorce. In the middle of nowhere, he says, someone who divorces his wife and marries another uh, commits adultery. And you kind of think, well, why would that show up? And maybe the Lord is saying, you know, um, you're doing all these good things, but don't think that that isn't significant because that's an example of what you're doing, which from God's sight is, uh, is wrong, you know, and one doesn't compensate for the other. And that kind of attitude bred in the Pharisees, this selfish um, looking down their noses at other people who were sinners as they saw them. And then that's what prompted the parable of uh, the rich man and Lazarus. So saying all of that, because thinking about the Pharisees being selective in the laws that they chose to follow and they would be overzealous in some areas thinking they could compensate for weaknesses in others. I wonder whether this parable that the Lord is telling to his disciples, not to the Pharisees, is warning them about applying the same kind of selective hearing to his commands. So you've got this guy who, it seems like the servant you know, is a, has a whole range of things that his master has employed him to do. Um, but he's, you know, he's selective and um, he's doing the things in the field. But, you know, you expect him to carry on doing the things, other things about the house that you pay him to do when he comes back out of the field. And this is all in the context of, um, of managing and dealing with sin in our discipleship relationships. I think perhaps the message is, um, are we selective in the things that we hear in terms of God's instructions and we do the things that actually we're quite comfortable to do and we don't necessarily warm to doing the things which are difficult. For example, rebuke. That's what he's just been talking about. If we're disciples of the Lord, this is the fifth point. Duty calls. We have a duty 
to be the person that he expects us to be in terms of our holiness, in terms of our spiritual integrity, in terms of the way we manage our relationships with each other, our own attitude to sin and our own attitude to each other's sin. So the punchline there is we have a duty and uh, we cannot be selective with the areas that um, we choose to obey and the areas that we don't. May God help us to watch ourselves and in the process cultivate sensitivity to sin in ourselves and in our community. Shall we pray?